welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me we have Sergeant Ali Beer. Ali joined the RAF Regiment, the Royal Air Force's Defence Force, in October 1999, and since then has been kind of all over the world, really. Amman, Kuwait, Falklands, Iraq, Afghanistan, Belize. He started in mountain rescue with the RAF team at Leeming in 2003, and is now on the permanent staff at Lossiemouth as the medical coordinator and deputy team leader. Welcome, Ali. Many thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, Dave. You're welcome. So I guess the first thing really is just to touch on a little bit of background about the Royal Air Force mountain rescue teams, because they're a little bit of a different beast from your your standard civilian team. Yes, the RF mountain rescue was formed during the Second World War. It was realised that a lot of trainee aircraft were crashing in mountainous areas around the UK and the crews were actually surviving the crashes because of the low speed of the aircraft in those days. And they were succumbing to their injuries or exposure up in the mountains. So in 1942, the RF medical officer at uh, RF Landjurog, who was a flying officer, George Graham, uh, started grabbing a handful of uh, volunteers, uh, taking them up to the hills to try and recover the aircrew uh, from these crash sites. And they did this with a, a high degree of success. And the RF map rescue services evolved from there. And I'm right in saying that you guys don't have a particular patch that you cover, but you just sort of roam around the country assisting other teams and also dealing with incidents in your own right? Yes, we're not geographically constrained. We will deploy uh, anywhere we're, we're required to. We've got three teams based around the UK. So my team at RF Lossiemouth, we've got our headquarters element and a team down at RF Valley in North Wales and another team at RF Leeming in North Yorkshire. The teams were permanently on standby, and fortunately, aircraft crashes don't happen very often. So we keep ourselves busy assisting the police and assisting the civilian mountain rescue services. But we're prepared to deploy anywhere in the world in our uh, main uh, role as aircraft post-crash management for the Royal Air Force. And it's that kind of aspect of the RAF rescue team that I, I want to kind of touch on. But before we go there, what sort of numbers are we talking? What kind of kit do you carry? What's your kind of capability, I guess? So we've currently got uh, 30 team members at uh, RF Lossiemouth. Each team is made up of seven full-time members who are released from their trades to basically administrate the team. And the rest of our strength comes from part-time volunteers drawn from all ranks and all trades of the Air Force who are available to us for training and for call-outs. Fantastic. And when you guys get called out, what does the sort of response look like? We'll all uh, muster at base if we're on unit. If we're already deployed for training, we'll generally get back together at our deployed operating base. The team has to be on the move within an hour. That's our response time and prepared to deploy anywhere in the UK for a protracted period of time. So we need to be self-sufficient for at least 48 hours. The team will deploy with a command and control vehicle, which gives us our communications platform. We'll deploy with several what we call ops vehicles which contain all our rescue and our medical equipment and we'll also deploy with a a van full of uh, our administrative equipment so that we can actually look after ourselves uh, potentially in austere environments uh, for as long as necessary. So you're a pretty self-sufficient unit and I guess that presumably stems from having to look after crash sites for a protracted period of time. 
yes, we'd look to manage a crash site for a up to 72 hours with no support from outside agencies, especially if it's up in the hill somewhere. And then we'll hand over to military crash guard from a local station. If it's up in the mountains, then the chances are we'll stay on scene to assist with mountain safety and to provide that side of assistance to the aircraft investigation branch and the aircraft wreckage recovery guys. That's going to be uh, pretty cold and pretty boring for, uh, for many jobs <laughs> in the winter, I'd imagine. Yes, that's why we train as mountaineers, because it means all our team members at all levels are are able to look after themselves in a mountain environment. If you can survive on the Cairngorm Plateau in the middle of winter, you can survive pretty much anywhere. (laughs) It certainly feels like it's uh, it's kind of the end of the earth at times. And just touching on your, your guys' medical backgrounds, what skill sets do you have from a med point of view? So currently we come into line with the Mountain Rescue England and Wales qualification of having casualty care providers. They complete a a two-week course and then the assessments and obviously have to keep up their continual professional development to keep current. A lot of our medical equipment is aimed at managing trauma and exposure because those are the sort of things we're going to come into contact with both as a mountain rescue team but also as a response to a, a crashed aircraft. Indeed. So I guess, I mean, plane crashes are pretty few and far between, but they tend to be jobs that stick in your mind. What sort of things do we need to think about if we are tasked to assist with a, a downed aircraft? And I'm guessing realistically this is most likely to be a sort of light aircraft type job. Uh, the important thing to remember is it's going to be quite a confusing crash scene because of the potential speed involved. Um, wreckage can be strewn over a, a long way. So we always teach that if you are dealing with a crashed aircraft, approach from uphill and upwind if possible to avoid any unstable wreckage and also uh, fumes and vapours that uh, could be uh, blowing downwind. You sort of touched on fumes and vapours. I'm right in saying that aircraft are full of some pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, they're very unpleasant uh, crashed aircraft and there's a good chance it'll be civilian first responders that are on scene long before we get there because of close proximity. So avoids going into a crash site unless it's absolutely necessary and be aware that there are numerous hazards we will get advice from the institute of naval medicine on route to the crash site and they'll give us specific levels of risk that we're going to go into depending on the type of aircraft but i think generically try to avoid entering the crash site unless absolutely possible if you do have to make sure you've got a correct level of ppe on so ppe is is going to be handy for the kind of splash hazards and fumes and the the oils and lubricants and stuff that are lying around but aircraft have got quite a few other nasty tricks up their sleeves in terms of things that go bang aside from just staying away from it if we're needing to deal with a pilot who's still on his seat what sort of things we need to think about so we make the assumption that all military aircraft are going to be arms because even if they're not carrying the obvious bombs and rockets and missiles, they still have a lot of explosive things in them, uh, particularly like you've just said, the things like ejector seats are particularly unpleasant. Even in a successful ejection, there can still be systems within the seat which are still live. So there's a good chance that we will always treat it with a high degree of caution and will avoid anything that will uh, transmit on a radio frequency anywhere near the seat because a lot of explosives are electrically detonated. And we will uh, have to get uh, specialist experts in from the RAF bomb disposal to deal with a seat. It's highly unlikely because of the ejection mechanism that a pilot will still be in his seat because they separate from the pilot and the parachute after ejection. 
but it could happen. The Shoreham air crash is a, is a good example of that, where the pilot was thrown clear of a fast jet, and I think he was still in his seat and still alive and needs to be recovered. So that's a, a very risky business. Absolutely. And just the thought of sitting on a chair that's made predominantly <laughs> yeah. of explosives is, uh, is pretty upsetting to us mortals. So, okay, we've got lots of, of nasty liquids and gases and fumes and explosive stuff. If we've got a patient who's alive, so pilot, co-pilot, who's alive within the wreckage, is there anything that we can do to kind of minimise our risk, minimise our exposure? You mentioned leaving behind anything that transmits, so that's presumably airwaves, radios, mobile phones, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's very important because they can potentially activate an explosive device from several metres away, and it's something that's quite easy to forget as well. So before we'll enter a crash site, have somebody who controls the entry into a crash site and make sure they sanitise people before they go in. And I think it goes back to the standards of just making sure you're safe before you approach a scene. Away from the sort of military jets, you know, the majority of, of light aircraft crashes are, are sort of civilian aircraft dotted about, often you know little two-seater type things, or out on the islands, slightly larger aircraft. What other hazards do they have that we need to think about? They're less obvious because we don't associate the light aircraft with explosives, but they do have their own rescue system called a ballistic recovery system. It's basically a large parachute that's deployed by a rocket and is operated on a pull cord system. And the idea is if the aircraft loses power or has a failure, the pilot will operate this and the plane will float down underneath the parachute. They're often retrofitted, so it's difficult to tell whether or not the aircraft has got one. They might not be marked up. So work on the safe assumption that the aircraft could have this system. In that case, the, generally the path of the rocket goes up and behind the aircraft. So don't approach from the tail if possible. Uh, and that should keep you clear of the path of the rocket if it does initiate. So coming downhill and downwind towards the, the crash site and staying away from the tail and, and obviously puddles of anything that looks nasty. Yeah, it's not always going to be easy because the wreckage could be very confusing. Try and avoid the front end of the aircraft where there's a, obviously air intake and propeller hazards, the back end of the aircraft, the ballistic recovery system, and try and approach from uphill and upwind. It's not an easy thing to do. It's going to be best efforts depending on the circumstances because the, the crash site's always going to be a confusing, difficult place to work in. Absolutely. And I, I guess ultimately it comes down to that sort of assessment of risk on scene and whether you're just going to have to sit on your hands until you guys rock up over the horizon to take over. It is. It's uh, It's potentially, yeah, entering any crash site is potentially going to be very, very risky. There are sort of the less obvious hazards as well, so uh, that you need to consider things like there, there could potentially be pressurised systems uh, from hydraulics or even tyres that have been exposed to a fire have got potential explosive risk. And it might not just be the aircraft wreck itself. It could be building rubble. Remember the uh, Bar helicopter crash where people were having to manage patients underneath a roof that had a, a helicopter that had come through it. So all in all, you're going to be dealing with a very difficult scene. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's a blessing that aircraft generally stay up in the sky the vast majority of the time. What about in sort of light airfields? Presumably, there are more systems in place for dealing with, with aircraft that have made a, an unexpected landing. Yeah, so any, any commercial airfield, even, even if it's a very small one, is going to have some kind of crash response. There will be fire appliance available and, and people are trained to manage that crash site. If you've got 
people like that on scene, take advice from them on A, the level of protective equipment you need to wear and also how best to approach and whether the scene's safe or not. Yeah, I'm guessing sort of thinking in terms of a structured response, anybody that rings treble nine and mentions a plane crash is probably going to generate things like the retrieval service and the special operations response teams coming from ambulance control, but it'll just be a, a factor of time until they get there. Yes, I think the overall sort of coordinated response is going to take a matter of hours because you're going to be having to deploy a lot of specialist agencies. So the first responders on scene are going to have to deal with some fairly uh, difficult to manage patients in, in a very difficult to manage environment. And how would we get in contact with a team like the RAF Mountain Rescue Team if we were needing either military expertise or just sort of pairs of hands of folk who know what they're doing around a crash site? We can be requested through the police if you specifically request RAF Mountain Rescue. That call will go through to our headquarters down at RAF Valley and they will deploy the nearest team. If it's a military aircraft crash, then the team will actually be tasked through uh, the Deputy Chief of Defence Staff Duty Officer based through Whitehall and will deploy a minimum of two teams to a military crash. So there'll be plenty of bodies around to help then? Yes, yes. We'll deploy by road for the majority, but we also have potential to deploy fast parties by either military aircraft, which has happened in the past, or by the Coast Guard Service helicopters as well. So we could potentially be on scene fairly quickly. And just, you mentioned helicopters there. I'm guessing they're all sort of lumped in under the aircraft banner. Are there any specific hazards with helicopters that we need to be aware of from a crash point of view? There's nothing so specific. They come under the same sort of risk heading as any other type of aircraft. They have the same systems on board, the same unpleasant chemicals and the same materials to make them up as well. The difference is you might potentially be dealing with a much slower speed crash site. So you're more likely to find people who are alive potentially have to extract them from the wreckage. So generally, sort of, yeah, more survivable, but equally hazardous environment to work in. Yes. Yeah. The environment's just as, just as unpleasant. Brilliant. One of the things we've been getting all of the folk who are coming on to talk to us to do is to give us three top tips for basics responders out there who might be tasked to an air crash. So I think uh, my tips would be if it's a military aircraft, always assume it's armed because it will have something highly explosive on it, even if it's not carrying the obvious bombs and rockets. The same goes for a civilian aircraft with these ballistic recovery systems. You're always better to work under the assumption that you're dealing with a high level of risk. My other tip is only enter the crash sites if you have to save life or for recognition of life extincts. For anything else, stay away from it and just coordinate. And as you're working around the crash sites, although it's not a priority, especially for a first responder, just have a thought for preservation of evidence. And I think the main thing to take away is that a crash site is going to be a really confusing, hazardous and unpleasant place. And if you turn up as the first on scene, you could be dealing with multiple casualties in a very difficult situation. And I think it's just, it's important to remember, take that deep breath, have a think about it, make sure you're safe before you go anywhere near it. Declare a major incident and accurate reporting is before you start actually exposing yourself to any kind of risk. I think it's the most useful thing to do before you start actually trying to treat patients, especially if you're the first person on scene. So logistically for our, our basics responders, that will be getting back in touch with the ambulance control room and raising a methane message with them that will presumably get sent across to you guys. Yes, that, that will initiate the, the cascade to get the right agencies en route to the crash scene and then manage your triage as, as best you can 
assuming you've, you've got the correct PPE to go into the crash site. Fantastic. Ali, that's brilliant. Thanks very much both for, for kind of running us through the background about the RAF mountain rescue team, but also kind of more specifically uh, dealing with light aircraft crashes and with military aircraft crashes and, and all just touching on the hazards that, that we need to think about and for these thankfully rare rare occurrences. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed uh, we're, we won't be having to deal with this sort of thing in the near future, but it's uh, it's always a possibility and it's something that we kind of have to have in the back of our minds uh, so that we are mentally prepared to deal with a crashed aircraft when it does happen. Absolutely, indeed. Well, yeah, many thanks and hopefully we'll see you out on the hill away from your work, guys, before too long. Ali, thanks yes, very much. Definitely. That would be great. <laughs> That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.